0: Now here's what we read, beginning at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. I want to show you where Daniel was actually reading. He was reading in the book of Jeremiah. I want you to look at chapter 25. And apparently he was reading verses 11 to 12 of Jeremiah chapter 25. At least that's what triggered this thinking. In Jeremiah 25 verse 11, This whole land shall be a desolation and a horror, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then it will be when seventy years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, declares the Lord, for their iniquity, and the land of the Chaldeans, and I will make it an everlasting desolation. I want you to also flip over in Jeremiah to chapter 29, because that number 70 years shows up once more. It's very possible that Daniel was reading this entire section in Jeremiah when he makes this statement in Daniel. And I want you to notice chapter 29 and verse 10. And here's what you read in Jeremiah 29:10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you and bring you back to this place. So this is what Daniel's reading that we read about in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. Now let's continue our reading. If you would look with me, please, to verse 3 of Daniel 9. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away, and all the countries to which you have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because... We have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we've rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. Thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us. For the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. Now, may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of that text and the exposition of it to follow a little later. Before we begin our journey, let's bow and look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for those here to partake of the word today. Pray that you would bless your scriptures to us, and may the Holy Spirit. Allow each of us to make application of this text in a very profitable and practical way, and we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. When we returned from Wyoming, my brother in law gave me an article that was written in a magazine called Michigan Outdoors. It was of some hunters who were hunting in the Bridger Teton National Forest, which happens to be the forest we were hunting in, and it was the story of a man who was attacked by a grizzly. It was very near the area we were hunting. And they had to fly a chopper in to actually retrieve him. It's possible that Tim and I actually heard that chopper the day that that happened. There's no question when you go into those mountains and you see signs of grizzly bear in every canyon that you don't hunt the same. You view things differently. Where you used to go charging through dark timber, now you're very careful about what you're looking at in that dark timber. And that's the way it is when you come to the Bible and you begin to understand prophecy. You don't look at the Bible the same anymore. Dr. Donald Campbell tells the story of a seminary student who was a pastor who said he didn't like to preach on prophecy because he said prophecy distracts people from the present. One wise Bible teacher took him aside and said, young man, there's certainly a lot of distractions then in the Bible because a lot of the Bible deals with the subject of prophecy. Now, it's been observed that biblical prophecy is not some escapism from the present. It's not a distraction from the present. It's motivation for the present. The fact of the matter is, when you study biblical prophecy, it should motivate every one of us to want to serve the Lord and live our lives for him, realizing that his prophetic truths will literally come to fruition. This is certainly true when it comes to Daniel chapter 9. This is one chapter that really does promote godliness, faith, and prayer. Now, Daniel chapter 9 is one of the most important chapters in all of Daniel. In fact, it's one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. In this chapter we learn incredible precise information about God's future. Daniel chapter 9 predicts with pinpoint accuracy the exact time that Jesus Christ would come on the earth and then be cut off and then it predicts with pinpoint accuracy what will ultimately happen to the nation Israel. Philip R. Newell called Daniel 9 the greatest chapter in the book and one of the greatest chapters in all of the Bible. Another writer said Daniel 9 is the high point of the book of Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 9 that we get information that is so detailed that it becomes the basis for us understanding the book of Revelation, which we will start studying here on Sunday night, October 30th, as we go through the book of Revelation. It was Dr. John Wolverd who called in his commentary on Daniel, Daniel the key to prophetic revelation. So this chapter becomes the backbone of biblical prophecy. What this prophecy proves is that Israel will survive one day, she will have her land, she will have a righteous king, and she will have her kingdom. Now the thing that launches us into this great prophetic truth is a remarkable prayer that Daniel makes right here. In fact, it was this prayer of Daniel that Judah's captivity would one day end that ultimately led to God fulfilling this remarkable prophecy. Now, I want you to think about Daniel for a moment because this man is a statesman. He's a politician. He's a businessman. But I want you to understand something. There's no position that he ever held that was more important than his position of prayer. The fact of the matter is, all throughout this book of Daniel, we discover that he was a man of prayer. No matter how high... He achieved success in life no matter the magnitude of the office that he held. He was a man who would bow down on his knees before God. It's said of great leaders that that's the way they are. They're men of prayer. It was said of Abraham Lincoln that he was a man, a great man of prayer. It's said that of our present president, that he's a great man of prayer. And there's a powerful lesson to be learned as we look at a text like this, and it is this. A critical key to understanding the deep mysteries of God is humble prayer that acknowledges truth before God about ourselves and about him. Now, that's what Daniel does. He simply bows down before God. He acknowledges truth about God, and he acknowledges truth about himself and about the nation Israel. Now when we go down through this prayer, this is not just a now I lay me down to sleep prayer. This is not just an our father who art in heaven prayer that he's repeating by rote repetition. This prayer is something that is very important. Because this is the prayer that actually moved God to reveal one of the most famous prophetic passages in all of the Bible. Now God is immutable in that he does not change. But God is not immobile in that he will move. And you can be sure of this, it is prayer that can move God. Now, it's one thing to see heaven, and heaven is spectacular to see. When we were out in the mountains one night, I asked him, I said, Tim, come out and look at this. And he came out and he looked up at that sky and he saw those stars and those planets from that high elevation. It was spectacular. It displays the glory of God. It's something to see it. It's something to see the heavens. But it's another thing to move the heavens. It's another thing to actually bow your heart and mind in prayer and move God who controls the heaven. And there's absolutely no question that prayer can move God who moves the world. Daniel was more powerful on his knees than Darius was on his throne. And there can also be no question as we go down through this that a key to us understanding the things of God is prayer. And may I suggest that when you come to church or you're preparing to come to church, that you just take a moment to pray and ask God to open up things for you that day. When you're getting ready to go to church, bow your heads and ask the Lord to unlock the scriptures for you and ask him to help me unlock them for you. I believe there's great development and growth that comes out of people who pray. You see, the Bible's not a book that you can just grasp like a math book. When Daniel was reading Jeremiah's prophecy. He couldn't just say, well, now let me see here. I can just all of a sudden figure this out. He needed to go to God and ask God for wisdom and insight, and that is exactly what he did. Now, there are three main headings that I want to show you that develop this text of Scripture quite nicely. First of all, you have the time of the revealed prophecy given to us in verse 1. In fact, it's repeated again in verse 2. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. Now, verse 1 gives us three specific facts pertaining to the time when this thing happened. First of all, it happened during the first year of the reign of Darius. Now, this is the same Darius that we saw earlier in the book who put Daniel in the lion's den. The specific year that this happened is stated for us twice, once in verse 1, again in verse 2. Whenever a writer in scripture repeats something twice and that's short of words, he's doing that for emphasis. Now this happened in the first year of the reign of Darius, that year was 539 B.C. What that means, ladies and gentlemen, is that it has been 13 years since Daniel got a vision in chapter 8. Daniel has now been in captivity 66 years since he was exiled in 605 B.C. Since he was taken by the Babylonians and taken to Babylon, it's been 66 years. If we admit that he was probably a teenager when that happened, we can begin to understand that Daniel would have been 82 or 83 years old by the time that this happens to him in Daniel chapter 9. He's done much for God. At this point in his life, he's been a man who's been mightily used by God. He's an old man, but he's not done. And I love seeing older people that aren't done. Older people that still want to know the word. Older people still coming to still learn, to still grow, that aren't done. They're Daniel types. And another thing that we can observe about Daniel is that every moment of his life was not an exciting day in which God reveals special things to him. The fact of the matter is there are gaps of time in Daniel's life. He gets a vision here, and then there's a gap of a few years, and he gets another vision. It wasn't like every day he was just getting special revelatory data from God, but every day of Daniel's life was one in which he was faithful to God. Every day of Daniel's life was one in which he prayed. Every day of Daniel's life was one in which he was in the Scriptures. And this is what made him so powerful. Perhaps you sense right now, You're very close to the Lord, and it's a great time for you. Or perhaps you sense right now that God is not real near you. You stay faithful to the Lord in the process of whether he seems near or far. You stay a person of prayer and a person of the word. That's the kind of person Daniel was. The second fact that's brought out is Darius was the son of Ahasuerus of Median descent. And what that immediately tells us is that this is a different Ahasuerus than the Xerxes, which shows up in the book of Esther, who would live and reign about a hundred years after these events. According to Dr. Robinson, he was the brother, this Ahasuerus was the brother of Cyrus' grandfather, and Daniel then is not working here for a godly guy. Daniel's not working here for an Israelite who loves the Lord. And I want you to know this, and this is something to observe. God can do great things with you in your world no matter who you're under. If you purpose to be faithful to the Lord, and faithful at your work, and you purpose to be one who prays, you can be mightily used of God no matter who's in leadership. Remember that when you go to your job this week. Pray for that boss of yours. Pray for those co-workers of yours. Even if they don't live their lives for the Lord, you can be used to greatly influence them. Daniel was. The third fact that's brought out is Darius had been made king over the Chaldeans, verse 1, who was made king. Now that is important because what that is in Hebrew is a haphal stem, That stem means that this is a passive verb and what that means is Darius the Mede had nothing to do with the action of becoming king. He was appointed king. It was Cyrus who was the Persian who actually was in charge and appointed Darius king over the Chaldeans. Now the Chaldeans were a tough bunch of people. The term Chaldean is used a couple of ways in the book of Daniel. It's referred to the wise men. They are referred to a group known as the Chaldeans. But it's also a term used to refer to a dominant race of people who were dominant during the Babylonian world. These were mountain people. They lived in mountainous areas. They were tough, rugged people. It's possible Cyrus said, well, that's a group for Darius to handle. And he put him in charge over this group. The thing that I want you to see, ladies and gentlemen, about Daniel is you do not need to be in a God-honoring environment in order for you to be greatly used of the Lord in order for you to understand the deep things of God. You can spiritually grow no matter where you're at. You can spiritually mature and develop no matter who's in charge, no matter where you are. Perhaps you're in a classroom with a teacher that mocks God. Perhaps you work for someone who is a God mocker. Perhaps you are working for people or you're surrounded by people who have no relationship with God whatsoever. That's Daniel's world. But what you find Daniel doing in that world is carefully studying the scriptures and praying to God. You can still grow if you take the same philosophy and the same action that he took. Now that brings us to the second heading. It was the study of Daniel, which leads to the revealed prophecy, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah. Now, Daniel was not just a man of prayer. He was a man of study. The occasion for the prayer is clearly stated in verse 2. Daniel was studying the books. He was studying the Bible. Daniel was carefully studying the scriptures. In fact, the noun books is articular in both the Hebrew text and in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, meaning these are specific books that Daniel was studying. He was studying God's sacred books. Now, we know from Daniel chapter 1 that Daniel was a well-read man. He studied a lot of books. There were a lot of things he read. There were a lot of things he learned about the Babylonian culture and world. However, the book... That he was studying here. The book that he was particularly interested in. Was the study of God's word. And he was carefully studying the word of God. Even under the auspices of a heathen power. Daniel was studying scripture. And not only was he studying scripture. We know specifically what he was studying. He was carefully studying the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. And he came across a number. A number which shows up at least twice. In Jeremiah's writings. And it was that number 70 years. And as Daniel was studying the book of Jeremiah, thinking about this, he saw that it had been predicted by Jeremiah that Israel would be held captive for 70 years, and then God would permit Israel to come out of that captivity. He's reading that in the book of Jeremiah. Now, he's thinking, well, we've been in captivity, let's see, 66 years. I was taken in captivity in 605 BC. It's 66 years later. Jeremiah predicts that this captivity is going to end in 70 years. And Daniel started thinking, you know, it's a possibility that this time is just about up. He's doing the math on this. He's thinking, well, we've been in captivity 66 years, and Jeremiah predicts it's going to be 70 years. Now, I want you to carefully notice something, ladies and gentlemen, that is so important to biblical prophecy. And that is, Daniel interpreted the prophetic scriptures literally. When Jeremiah said 70 years, Daniel took it to mean 70 literal years. Those who allegorize the Bible will never learn much about prophecy. They'll never see God do much of anything. When Revelation, for example, says that Israel will be in a kingdom one day for a thousand years... And that number is stressed several times in Revelation 20. You can be sure it will be a thousand years. When Paul predicts that the church will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and that will end the church age and begin the tribulation, you can be certain that's exactly what's going to happen. The church is going to be raptured, caught up in the air. When Paul predicts that every believer will face a bema seat judgment in which we will all stand before Jesus Christ to give an account of what we've done, you can be absolutely certain that is exactly what's going to happen. Because when God predicts something, it comes to fruition literally. When Daniel read 70 years and he realized that they're at year 66, that got him excited, and what he did in his excitement... Is he prayed? He realized that he was alive at the very time that God was about to do something major. And what Daniel is about to do here is amazing because he's about to claim the promise of God and actually live to see it fulfilled. I am convinced, ladies and gentlemen, that there are times when reading the Word of God should drop us to our knees. The prophecy that Daniel's reading humbled him. As you'll see in just a moment, he judged himself and he judged Israel. And that's what prophecy can do. It can humble you when you realize that these things are going to happen and we will face the Lord. There are times when we will be prompted to respond to the word of God that we bow and pray. In fact, I think, ladies and gentlemen, one of the most profitable readings of scripture is that which forces you to lay your Bible down and get down on your knees before the Lord. That was one of those times for Daniel. He was about to claim the promise of God. May I ask you a question? Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed or been reading the scripture and you've been led or moved to literally put the Bible down and fall down before the Lord? There was a person who was struggling one time with assurance and the person was advised, go to God and remind God of what he has said, that if you believe on him, you have everlasting life. Tell him how you feel that you're struggling and claim those things that God has said. Whoever believes on him shall not perish but have eternal life. By faith you're saved, not by works. He said, remind God of this. It will strengthen you. I personally know of a prayer meeting in which a person was fervently praying and he wanted God's action on a particular matter and he'd somewhat forgotten the scripture that he was fuzzily quoting in the midst of the prayer and he stopped in the middle of his prayer. And he grabbed the word of God. He went back to prayer and he said, God, this is what you've said. This is what you've said in your word. And he read it precisely. I've personally known of prayer meetings which have resulted from reading the word and a person was so personally moved that they literally dropped to their knees so moved by the word. That's what Daniel does here. Daniel's so moved by figuring this out. 70 years, we're going to get out of captivity. This is year 66. He just falls down before God. Which brings us to the third heading, the prayer of Daniel, which leads to the revealed prophecy. Now, all throughout the book of Daniel, we have seen this is a man of prayer. When he wanted to interpret a dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he prayed. This is a theme that shows up often in the book of Daniel. It shows up in chapter 2, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and it shows up again here in chapter 9. Now, I want you to carefully notice that Daniel did not proudly and arrogantly name it and claim it. Daniel does not fall down before God and demand that God do this because the number is 70 and they're at year 66. He humbly goes before God in an attitude of tremendous humility and repentance. He's going to ask God to be gracious. He's not going to demand that God do anything. The fact of the matter is, God would be just if he eliminated everybody. Now verse 3 gives us a look at the humble attitude Daniel had. So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. He gave his attention, his undivided attention to going to the Lord in prayer. He said, I'm going to have to pray about this. I've been reading the scriptures. I've seen these numbers. I need to pray. And the word prayer refers to intercession. The word supplication, entreaty. I need to go to God. I need to make a supplication to the Lord. I need to make my entreaties known to the Lord. And when he says, I gave my attention to it, That Hebrew word describes, he actually gave himself to something, his deliberate action. What Daniel did here is he deliberately humbled himself before God, before he began to pray. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a critical issue when it comes to prayer, preparation for prayer. We don't hear a lot about that. We don't even think a lot about it. But the fact of the matter is, People who actually are going to move God through prayer are people that will prepare themselves to pray, and certainly they're going to be people who are humble in their prayer. And they're not going to try to impress God with how great they are or how much they've done. Daniel certainly did nothing of the kind. And there were two ways that Daniel humbled himself. First, physical humility of fasting. He decided, I need to really focus on God. I'm not even going to take time to eat. And secondly, with clothing humility by wearing sackcloth and ashes, which according to scripture was a sign of tremendous humility and grief and repentance. Now I want you to remember who this man is. This is Daniel, a prime minister. This is a man who's known in both the Babylonian and Persian world. This is a very important man, but he was never too important or too proud to humble himself before God. He was never too proud to wear sackcloth and ashes. Listen, have you ever bowed down before God on your knees and spent time in prayer? Oh, don't ask me to do that because of who I am and how successful I am in my world. Daniel was the most successful man in the world. The fact of the matter is you see this man humbly before God. There's something reverent about bowing down on our knees before the Lord alone when you're in a closet. And if you've never done that, I would encourage you to do it. Now the contents of the prayer occur in verses 7 to 19. The way the prayer breaks down, first of all, verse 4 is exaltation. Verses 5 to 15 are confession verses, which we're going to look at today. Verses 16 to 19 are petition verses. What this means is only four verses ask God to do something, but 11 verses are involved in confessing how undeserving and how unworthy the people are to have God do anything. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is a far cry from the religious frauds and shysters who demand that God do things because they're demanding it. For the most part, then, this prayer is a prayer of confession. There's nothing in this prayer that tries to build up man. There's nothing in this prayer that tries to build up Israel. Daniel sees things accurately and honestly. God is a righteous God, and as he says, he is a covenant-keeping God. And that's exactly what he says in verse 4. He's the one who keeps the covenant. His people aren't faithful, and his people don't keep covenants. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, I believe that God is going to give Israel her land. I want to show you a text that describes the boundaries of the land that Israel has been promised. One passage quickly. It's in Genesis, chapter 15. This is pretty specific. This is a promise of God to Israel. In verse 18, here's what God promises Abraham. He says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant, a covenant with Abram saying, To your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates. Now, I want you to think of whatever river in Egypt. Think of the Nile and think of the Euphrates River. And I want you just to think about how much land Israel has today. She has never occupied a fraction of that ever in her history. And yet God says, I am a covenant-keeping God, and I'm making a covenant with you, Israel, and I'm going to give you this land. It'll run from Egypt all the way to the Euphrates. And just to be sure that we understand, he names the powers that were in place that he ultimately will no longer be in place when Israel has that land. Now, when you look at modern-day... Middle Eastern problems, you say, boy, things don't look too good. Just recently, she lost 20 Jewish cities on the Gaza Strip along the Mediterranean Sea, which put 8,000 Jews out of their houses. Why do we believe that God's going to one day give them all of that land when they don't even have but a portion of it right now? Because he is a covenant-keeping God. And you can be certain, just as he's promised, that Israel will have the land she will have the land. I also carefully want you to notice how Daniel addresses God in verse 4. There are three terms, three nouns that he uses for God. He calls him Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Jehovah, Jehovah. He calls him God, G-O-D, that's Elohim. And he calls him capital L, small case O-R-D, Adonai, which is Lord and Master. So you have in one verse the three main Old Testament nouns that God uses for himself, Jehovah, Elohim, and Adonai. This is the only chapter in Daniel where he uses the name Jehovah, and in this one chapter he uses it seven times. He is bowing before God and everything God reveals himself to be. And there are ten acknowledgments that he makes about God in this prayer. First of all, The prayer acknowledges the greatness of God. Verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God. The emphasis of that Hebrew word awesome is that God is a God to be feared. He's a God to be reverenced. Like David said, the secret of the Lord belongs to those who fear him. He's a God to be reverenced. Prayer that will move God is not prayer that elevates you and me. It's prayer that elevates God prayer that will move the heart of God is prayer that acknowledges the greatness of God. He's the awesome God. He is to be feared. He's far above us. He's far beyond us. And those who will move God in prayer recognize this reality. Ministry should acknowledge the greatness of God. If we can explain, as one writer said, what's going on in ministry, then probably God isn't doing it. Because when God's doing the great things, it's his work and his power that's taking place. Secondly, the prayer acknowledges who God honors. Verse 4, great awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Those who truly love God, obey God. Daniel says, here are the people that will see God do great things. Here are the people that will move this great awesome God, those who love him and those who obey him. Those two thoughts go together. You cannot say you love God if you don't obey God. People who love God purpose to obey God. Now the third acknowledgement is he acknowledges the sinfulness of Israel. I want you to notice verse 5. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Daniel confesses this as if he was as guilty as everybody else. He says, we, the pronoun verse 5. He says, us, in verse 8. Open shame belongs to us. He puts all in there in verse 11. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed. And he uses the pronoun we again down in verse 15 when he says that we have sinned and we have been wicked. He throws himself in the equation. Four times in these verses, he stresses the fact that everybody in Israel has sinned. And Dr. Leon Wood said he uses four different Hebrew verbs to stress the level of Israel's sin. He does not try to water this down. He uses four verbs in Hebrew that describes every kind of sin that Daniel knew about in his mind and in his vocabulary. Dr. Wood said those verbs teach that Israel was guilty of not only missing the mark, but they were committing iniquity, acting perversely, rebelling, defying authority. In every possible respect, Israel had grossly sinned against God, and Daniel is on his knees acknowledging that reality. And by the way, Daniel does not leave anything out here. This confession is very specific. When it comes time for God's people, I'm not talking about unsaved people. When it comes time for God's people to get right with God, they've got to be specific in confession. Specific. Before I'm about to go on a hunt, I have a list of things I go over, from groceries to equipment. And I carefully work through this list. Mary and I have done this for years, and we kind of know these things, and we know what needs to go. I'm talking about food. You're talking about mantles for uh, lanterns. You're talking about gas that you may need, equipment that you may need. You have to work through everything because when you get in there, if you don't have this stuff, you can't run to the store. You're in serious trouble. You don't leave anything out on the list. And when we go to God and we want to move God, and we realize that we've sinned against God, you don't leave anything out of the list. No one's going to see God by praying generically. And no one's going to see God move who tries to dance around the sin reality. Pharisaical righteousness may impress other people, but it doesn't cut it when it comes to the Lord or move him to answer prayer. So when Daniel prays, Daniel does not leave anything out And when we go to God and expect to move him, don't leave anything out. The fourth acknowledgement is the prayer acknowledges the refusal to listen to God's men. Verse 6, moreover, we've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of our land. Israel would not listen to God's men. God sent him his special prophets and servants who preached the word. He sent him men. He sent Israel men who had special messages for Israel. She would not listen. In fact, Israel did this very thing to the prophet Daniel had been reading about Jeremiah. Jeremiah went to the nation and they locked him up. It is serious business to not listen to the word of God. And when the people of God gather together, they should come expectantly to hear the word of God. God's word is not a take-it-or-leave-it proposition. If it's rightly divided, it must be responded to. And this is what Israel was refusing to do. When you come to church to hear God's word, you're coming to hear God speak to you. That's the way you should think about it. That's the way you should believe. And that's the way it should be viewed. And if you come to hear the word of God, and you say, ah, case Sarah, no big deal. I heard it, so what? And you leave here, and it doesn't make a difference, it doesn't affect you, you decide you're not going to respond to it, you're culpable. And that's what Daniel's saying, Israel is culpable. She did not listen to the word of God. The fifth acknowledgement is the prayer acknowledges that God is righteous. Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you. In contrast to the unrighteous Israel, in contrast to unrighteous people, God was a righteous God. Even in his judgments, he's righteous. Fact of the matter is, he had every righteous right to allow Israel to be taken captive. He had every righteous right to allow those temple articles to be taken and to be stolen because his people were not demonstrating any form of righteousness. And if you right now find that in your world, you're in a real mess, may I suggest the problem isn't with the righteousness of God. It's never with the righteousness of God, more than likely the problems with us. The sixth acknowledgement is the prayer acknowledgement that God's people deserve open shame. Look what Daniel does. Verse seven, he says, to us belong shame. And it's interesting because he says, because of their unfaithful deeds, which they have committed against you, those unfaithful deeds. That's an interesting Hebrew word. It's a word that means like in English, stealth. Things you try and hide. That's what a stealth plane does. It's like hidden. You don't even know it's there. You can't detect it. Unfaithful deeds, the Hebrew language, described sin moments when people think nobody saw it. It was hidden. Nobody has a record of it. And by putting shame After acknowledging God's righteousness, Daniel's clearly saying, you can't blame God for our problem. The problem is with us. Ladies and gentlemen, when we sin against God, we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. We deserve to be. In fact, that can be a good thing that can lead to repentance. If we've been unfaithful and our lives are a disaster, we ought to be ashamed of that. What we need to do is go to the Lord and call it straight. Be very specific and turn from it. Which brings us to the seventh acknowledgement. The prayer acknowledges that God is a forgiving and compassionate God. Look at verse 9. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we've rebelled against him. Now I want to point out something that doesn't show up in English. But the words forgiveness and compassion are both plural in Hebrew which means forgiveness and compassion in fullness. In other words, full forgiveness and full compassion are found with God. Full pardon of sin is found with God. It belongs to the Lord, but one must face sin before they have it. God will grant full forgiveness to those who deal with sin. And no matter what the sin, as Matthew says, any sin can be forgiven if one is willing to face it. Look. If you're here today and you've sinned against God, you're in good company with the rest of us because all of us have done that. But you can still have wonderful relationship with the Lord and find full forgiveness and find his compassion if you face the sin. Which brings us to the eighth acknowledgement. The prayer acknowledges that God's people have rebelled and not obeyed. Verses 9 and 10 is kind of a repetition. We've rebelled against him, nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. Israel as a nation had chosen not to obey the teachings of God, and that is why she found herself being dominated by these Gentile powers. That's why she was in trouble. That's why she'd been in captivity. The ninth acknowledgement is this prayer acknowledges that God's people have transgressed and sinned against God. Verse 11, Indeed, all Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. Moses in the law said that blessing would come if the nation obeyed the law. Cursing would come if she didn't. Israel had transgressed the law, and as a result, she was suffering the curse of God. This is such a simple counseling principle. People who get in messes typically get in those messes by transgressing the word of God. If a person would say, I want to do what God's word says, you would... Discover that a lot of the messes would unravel and get cleaned up and cleared up. But when people do not want to obey the word, it becomes just a nightmarish mess. And that's the situation Israel was in because she did not want to obey the word. The final acknowledgement is the prayer acknowledges that God's people deserve to be punished with calamity. Verse 12, thus he has confirmed his words which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us to bring us great calamity. Daniel knew that these people deserved it. Daniel knew that God is the one who causes calamity to fall on people. He knew that God was the one who caused calamity to fall on Israel. She deserved it. You know, in all this talk of what's happened down in the Gulf Coast, and I've been gone for a couple of weeks, we're out of touch with everything, news, we don't even know what's going on when we're in those mountains. You can't even get radio back in there. And then you come out and you hear all this talk about the Gulf Coast. I've only heard a couple of people say New Orleans deserves to be wiped off the map. God can do that. He can do that with that city and he can do it with Reno and San Francisco and Las Vegas. They deserve it because they are immoral cities. They could care less about God. They're God-mocking cities. And they are people who by their behavior flaunt their sin. Now you're not hearing people say like Daniel, we deserve that. We deserve God to pour out our wrath and wipe us out. But Daniel, humbly before God, says, We deserve to have the calamity that God has given to us because we've so rebelled against him. You see, ladies and gentlemen, no one will ever get anywhere with God until they're willing to be honest and humble just like this. It's this honesty and humility, as you'll see next time, that leads God, that moves God, to answer prayer and bring Israel out of her captivity. And oh, what a message that comes from this text today. God is a God of full compassion and full forgiveness, but you cannot skirt the sin issue and experience the full compassion and full forgiveness of God. Don't make excuses. Don't blame God. Put the emphasis of the problem where it belongs. Call it straight. We're the problem. God isn't and you can experience the mercy of God. May we pray. If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, listen, no matter what your sin, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've rebelled against him, you can have the full forgiveness of God through him. But you must be willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner before him and that you cannot work out some deal with God. So right now in this personal moment, you pray something like this, God, I'm a sinner, I admit it. I thank you that Christ died for me. And right now, I believe on him to be my Savior, inviting him into my life. Father, we realize that Israel as a nation who knew you rebelled against you, just as we as individuals who have known you have rebelled against you. We're so grateful for the fact that you are a God of forgiveness and compassion. We pray that we would be honest, truthful people. When we fail, we pray that we'll be just like Daniel. Call it straight. Come right to you and call it straight. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for allowing us to have a relationship with you, the great and glorious, awesome God. In Jesus' name, amen.